Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Welcome to part two of our exciting two-part series with Greg Savage of The Savage Truth. Now, in part one, we introduced you to our powerhouse guest who had a lot to share about his own experiences in the sales and acquisition space, as well as a great perspective from the coalface on multiple different methods of business exit. We heard his story relating to the growth of his very first company from being a startup business to being a $60 million company while surviving the 1990 recession. So any of those businesses who are suffering some tough times Greg's discussion in part one here is a really good booster in terms of what is available to you as a business owner. We then talked about his experiences in an IPO and we discussed how to optimize growth through acquisitions. And then we closed part one with some great discussion on that ultimate tricky area, earnouts. So look, if you missed part one of this series, don't forget to jump back and listen to it after this episode. But for now, keep listening as we dig deeper into Greg's coalface experience in engineering a management buyout. We also talk about some key concepts Greg has learned in the M&A space about what has changed over the years in the way he approaches acquisitions and the brutal truths he has to offer from his encounters in this area. And finally, we wrap things up by running through a list of things that you ought to consider when getting ready for exit. So, let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area. And hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. One of the things that I loved when I was looking at your bio is you have so many elements there that touch on the different types of exit because quite often I think when business owners are looking at this concept of what does the end look like for me or what is the exit plan can become confusing considering many of the different types of exits. So you've talked about a listing here, you've talked about acquisitions and in your experience after you left your listed company, you then ended up in an organisation that you then participated in a management buyout of. Is that right? Yeah. So what happened there was, I think I took a a year. I was very lucky because I was about 40 or something. I felt I'd worked hard and all the rest of it. So I took a year off. It ended up being 18 months when traveling with my family in Europe. We had another child, my son. I was at home for the first year of his life, which is a magnificent benefit to me and my wife. And to him, I tell him, he's 17 now. (laughs) And then I... I was approached to join this company called Aquent. And Aquent is an American business based out of Boston and is the largest recruiter of marketing digital staff in the world. And they had 40 offices in America at that time. And they had five outside America. And I was given the job of, of, of what they call international CEO. But in American speak, that means everything outside America. Right. <laughs> it was actually quite a small job, but I liked it because it wasn't anything to do with accounting and finance. They had a different attitude to the way they treated candidates, which is which was ahead of its time. I was going to run offices that included Australia, but also New Zealand, Singapore, and Japan. So I liked the thought of that. And I actually worked with that organization for 10 years. And it was a brilliant sort of ride because it was from 2001 to 2008 was the first stanza of that story. When we grew those five offices to 35 offices, I opened offices in another 30 cities around the world. 
a chunk of those would have been by, by acquisition. And we made at least four acquisitions in London to grow our business there. And it was, you know, from, we opened offices, I mean, in some of the places you may not even have heard of. We opened five offices in Japan. We were in Taipei. We were in three offices in China. We were in, across Europe, India. And it was a brilliant ride. And the revenues grew from like 20 million, no, less, 10 million to 100 million outside of America, I mean. And that was great. And I began to almost believe that I was pretty damn good at all this. <laughs> what actually happened, which was a very good figurative slap in the chops for me, was in 2008, when the Lehman Brothers and everything went pear-shaped, the world went into recession, particularly in markets like the UK, our revenues dropped. And that was okay, because I dealt with that before. But it exposed that we weren't nearly as good a company as I thought we were. Don't get me wrong. Aquant is a magnificent company and was then and is now. But the business I had built had flaws that, you know, when you're doing well, you either choose not to see or you don't see, such as our relationships with clients weren't as strong as we thought, our management in some places. I'm not saying it's easy, but if you're in a rising market and you do solid work, your business can look very impressive. It's how you can manage in times of strife, which, of course, exposes a lot of people. And it's true of life as well. Some of our staff weren't as good as we thought. Some of our technologies weren't as. So it was it was a tough time. I won't say it was humbling. I mean, I was still the CEO of a very successful business. We still were profitable, but we had to close some offices and I hadn't done that for many, many a year. And you know, we had to do some difficult things. And we did, and we righted it and away we went. But then Aquent and myself, we agreed that uh, some of the markets they were in didn't fit their long-term plan and some of the sectors they were in. And anyway, it allowed us the opportunity to engineer, manage and buy out, which we did with Aquid's full support, don't get me wrong, they ended up being a minority shareholder in this new company called Firebrand, which was 10 offices in eight countries. And let me tell you, that is a difficult thing because on day one, I was the CEO of Aquid. On day two, I was the CEO of Firebrand, which had no branding, no history, and had 10 offices in eight countries, which sounds big, but let me tell you, we only had about 150 staff at our biggest. So we were actually a small business spread across a lot of geography, including countries as far different as England, France, Japan, New Zealand, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, So, and, and, and Singapore, and Australia. So very diverse, some of them not even speaking English. So the challenges of building a brand and managing people across those geographies was when, when you didn't have the resources that I used to have at Aquin, because we're now a startup, I guess, in a way. However, our planning was, hey, the market's gone back 40%. Let's create this new company at what we might perceive to be the bottom of the market. Let's do a great job and ride the market recovery was our plan. Did it work? 50% it worked. It worked, but I could see three years later that for me to achieve everything would be another five years. I was already in my 50s and I thought, you know what, this business is great, but let me sell it to somebody else who can, who can work those five years while I go and do something else. And that's what I did. I mean, I was the majority shareholder, so I sold the business. That business still continues on in Australia very successfully, and all the staff kept their stuff and their jobs and all the rest of it. So, so that was uh, that was quite a good exit to me financially. You know, it wasn't what we were. You know, it wasn't our big dream, but it was fine, and time was right. And were you one of these sellers that you talk about who believed the business was worth more than <laughs> you know you could convince the buyer of? <laughs> I was pragmatic at that time. I was wise, and I had my own agenda. Right. I was very concerned not only about the financials as much as the retention of all the staff who had come with me on that journey, and I wanted to end up in the right place. So I would say by far a greater degree that that happened. So that was cool. 
Mm. There's quite a history of M&A activity there, obviously, through your background that we've just heard. What do you think has changed over time in your approach or your feelings and understandings of acquisitions from, say, the first acquisition or two through to where you are today? Acquisition is like a, a courting relationship. It's got to be equal. There's got to be interest from both sides. And so to answer your question, I am far quicker to walk away from things that, that I know. I can see the signs early on. Tire kicking, lack of sincerity. People are going to be a pain in the ass afterwards. There's no point. <laughs> and maybe they feel the same, but that's, that's all good. Whereas before it was like, oh, you know, we've got to make this work. Let's just brush under the carpet that the seller's a bit of a dick because it'll be better once we, nah. If his dick is dick, so uh, not, not going to change that. So, and you've got to work with that person, and they've got to they've got to come into your business, and interact with your staff, and maybe manage your staff. I think you run a ruler over things. It's much more, I wouldn't say rigid, but it's more robust. I think that's important. I think putting much, as I touched on before, putting much more into the potential for misalignment and, and coming up with the brutal truths. You know what it's really like. So what is your role really going to be here? Well, you'll be on the management team. We will value your input. But no, you will no longer actually have the final say. You know, maybe you need to actually say that and say that, you know, we would never just come in and just say, hey, we've just, you'd always be brought in. And your point of view would be the same as any other manager here that if they argue a case strongly, we can adjust our point of view. But at the end of the day, when you sell your business, what a lot of people don't realize, you no longer own your business. Yes. You can't have my money and also make the decisions, sometimes to say to people. There's that part of it. On the other side of the fence, when you have people coming to court you to buy your business, which happens if you create a business of, of value, then I think I've learned not to be seduced by, you know, it's like anything. When someone pays attention to you, you want to you want more of it. You know, like, for example, I was in a board meeting the other day where, where an approach was made and people were saying, oh, well, we should hear this. And I said, are we willing to sell? At a price we are. And I said, what's that price? And they named this big number. And I said, do you think any company would pay that? And they said, no. I said, well, why Why would we waste their time and ours getting a little bit excited? It's just a little bit of self-satisfaction. You know, we shouldn't do it. So I think that bit of maturity is good. Let's walk away from it. If we are seriously thinking about it, well, let's go into it with that frame of mind. So I think that's changed. I think the other thing is I'm very clear on the factors. I think what, what I say to people is, Recruitment companies and all companies, but recruitment companies, I can only speak about what I know, are, are typically valued on a multiple of, of EBIT and that we know. But what the buyer is really buying is the certainty of future profits. And therefore, I look at those risk factors, right? So the business mix, it would be very unlikely to ever buy a business that was all permanent recruitment, which is, you know, one-off uh, revenue. I would look at the annuity revenue. I would look very closely at the succession team. In other words, Fred and Mary are selling their business. They're staying with us for two years. But how much does the business rely on those two? And who are the are the next, the, the, the second tier of management? How strong is that? Because they're the people we're going to live with. I would look at the rigor around just the way the business is conducted. You know, it's, it's clean business structure. If it gets too hard to understand which is really a business expense and which is paying the nanny in France, then it's too hard sometimes. I mean, you can normalize things and you do, but... Sometimes it's very complicated. Obviously, the growth potential is looked at, the niche and specialization. But what does this business bring us apart from revenue that we could do with? Have they got some special um, assessment techniques that are good for us? Do they have a regional footprint that we want? Do they have access to clients that 
we can then sell our other services to. You know, those are all the things that you need to look at, which will impact what you're prepared to pay, but also whether you're prepared to buy it at all. And I do find people get very much romanced by the thought of adding big chunks of revenue. They don't risk. Sounds to me like your experience has been over time that you've become perhaps less emotional about each purchase because certainly I see in businesses that haven't been involved in a lot of M&A deals, there's a higher level of emotion and (laughs) wanting to get the deal done quicker, but also that you've become far more strategic in terms of how those acquisitions, who those acquisitions will be of and how they would be made. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, Joanna, experience and painful experience teaches you that. I do think sometimes I annoy my younger colleagues who perceive me as being a bit of a buzzkill sometimes because I often say, really, do we really want an office in Adelaide? love Adelaide, but what's the upside in our industry? And if we're going to have an office in Adelaide, that's a lot of investment of time and management time and training and, and money. Wouldn't it be better if we just invested by hiring six more people in Sydney? And they look at me and they go, geez, he's a pain in the ass. He's right, but he's a pain in the ass. But that comes from having done that, you know, wrong so many times. And we just need to be pragmatic and you need the voice of reason because acquisitions, obviously, they cost a lot of money. And you've got to ask yourself the question, we're going to pay $4 million for this business, or let's make it a smaller number. We're going to pay a million dollars for this business. What else could we do with a million dollars to grow our business? I mean, we could spend it on the races, but what else could we do with a million dollars? We could hire a lot of people. We could invest in technology. Would that give us a quicker and better and safer return? Those are the sorts of sensible questions that need to be asked. And the answer might be, yes, they could, but we will never get into this crucial market of marketing in Melbourne, and we need to do that as part of our strategy. Okay. In that case, that may be a million dollars well spent, as long as all the other criteria stack up. So I see some crazy acquisition deals. I see some crazy prices paid for business. I can almost tell them how much they're going to lose. In my industry, I mean, you know, just because I know it. But I've also seen some very, very, very positive deals done that have enhanced the careers and, and the financial position of a lot of people, which, of course, is good. take a short break. When we get back, we'll talk about why the excitement in M&A transactions very rarely live up to the dream. Then we close this series by carefully identifying the key things that you ought to consider in getting ready for exit, whichever type of exit you may choose. And that's next. This is Joanna Oki and you're listening to The Deal Room, a podcast brought to you by Aspect Legal. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Welcome back. Earlier we heard Greg's story, how he engineered a management buyout and the insights that came with that experience. 
We also talked about the changes Greg has adopted over time in his approach in doing acquisitions based on lessons learned and gathered from having done and seen it happen many times over. Now let's jump back into our conversation with Greg and talk about some tough observations he has made about the realities in the M&A space. Then we wrap things up by running through the key elements that you ought to consider in getting ready for exit, whichever type of exit you may choose. I saw this comment by you, due diligence will kill you, which made me laugh. I thought that was quite funny. But maybe if you could talk to us a little bit about what you meant by that, that due diligence will kill you. Obviously, you've had some fun experiences with due diligence. Well, what I meant by that is if you've got all sorts of whiz-bang funny structures running through your business, if you bullshitted the buyer about your margins and your client breadth and the number of assignments and revenue you've got from, it'll all come out in the due diligence. Yeah. And, and, you know, in my industry, which is dominated by people who are very good at selling, I like to say, yes, you sell, but, and of course you sell the future and the growth and everything else and yourself, but there's no point in sort of exaggerating the reality because if they do a proper due diligence, you know, and I'm not talking about a financial due diligence only, I'm not talking about going through the P&L and all that. I am talking about that, but I'm also talking about, you know, when I do a due diligence of a recruitment company I'm going to buy, I'm looking at the top 50 clients, every transaction, what the actual fees were. So I really know the quality of the business. And if somebody does a good due diligence and you've been gilding the lily, they will find out and the thing will fall over. And I've seen that happen multiple times. You also comment that the brutal truth is that most transactions disappoint all parties. And I think we get a flavour of why you say that from some of the experiences you've shared. But it seems like a fairly tough, (laughs) a fairly tough comment. I think it sounds like you've obviously seen much larger number of transactions disappoint parties than have fully succeeded. But what do you mean by that, I guess? Can you drive into why they disappoint the parties? I'll tell you in a minute, but I'll also just make this point to you. I'm, my expertise is in the recruitment industry. I've also got many, many, many investments, like most people, in, in the share market. And so I keep an eye on what all these companies are doing. And let me tell you, the majority of their acquisitions are fuck-ups. <laughs> so it is not easy didn't NAB lose most of their business by making an acquisition in the, in, in the UK? Isn't almost any company riddled with historical examples? So I'm not some doomsayer who's negative about acquisitions. I'm just the guy who's been around long enough to know that the excitement very rarely uh, lives up to the dream. And when you ask me, what do I mean? I mean that the stakeholders, there are typically three, four or five stakeholders in a transaction like this. There's the buyer, there's the seller. There's the staff, there's the candidates, and there's the clients. Let me leave candidates and clients out. If you like, we can replace them with one word, customers, okay, for any business. So the buyer often is disappointed by how much they have to spend and how much management time it takes to integrate that acquisition. They are often disappointed by the effort, the collaboration, and the ethic of the sellers. And they are often disappointed, even if those things are okay, by the predicted revenues, and they are often disappointed about the so-called economies that are going to be made with an acquisition. Uh, We're going to save money by putting these two businesses together. So that's where the disappointments come on that side. For the vendor, they're often disappointed because the earnout is painful. 
They're often disappointed because they don't make as much as they thought they would. They're often disappointed because the buyer doesn't deliver on all their promises. And they're often disappointed because their role isn't as exciting as they thought it would be. They're often disappointed because they've now lost control and, and having run their own business for 20 years, they forgot how important it was for them to be the boss. For the staff, it can be tremendously disappointing because they are wedded to an employer and when the transaction takes place, they have a new employer. And that means there might be differences in the way they're paid, there might be differences in culture, there might be differences in roles, they might have some of their colleagues let go. Plenty of things can go wrong. And for the customer, well, often service levels can drop because of the distraction of an acquisition. Now, each and every one of those things has the other side of the coin where it can go great. And uh, there are many examples of people's careers that have taken off where where one-on-one has made three, as I've said before, and everyone's been been happy. And I've been involved in, a, in quite a number of those. But I stand by my statement that the cruel reality is most acquisitions do not deliver on what people hoped. And I guess then the message for organisations who are looking at this concept of acquisition as a growth strategy is to get less emotional about it and sit down and, and work through each of these areas that you've talked about to head off issues before they arise. Very much so. Acquisition is a very legitimate growth strategy. Don't get me wrong. I'm on the board of 12 recruitment companies. I reckon four of them, we're evaluating acquisitions right now. So this is in play. Don't get me wrong. But I think if you think, oh, we turn over 40 million, this is, here's one, a business adding 10 million. That's going to give us 50 million. Let's do it. I would say that there's a lot of other things, as I've touched on today, that you need to evaluate to make sure that you don't get the 10 million in revenue, pay too much, and cause yourself so much pain that you will be regretting it. I guess a lot of what we've been talking about today revolves around the buyers, but perhaps maybe if we could round this out now by also just giving a quick snapshot for businesses out there who are looking to create an effective exit plan, they're looking at a sale or some sort of exit in the next five years or so, what would you recommend to them in terms of getting their business ready? And in terms of what the best options are that they should be considering? Well, I think there's a great many things they need to do. First of all, they need to make sure that all the shareholders are aligned and you cannot make an assumption about that. So let's go and have an away day, get an outside facilitator if there are two, three, four shareholders or major shareholders anyway, and make sure everyone's on the same page. That is uh, the first thing. And then that leads on to start to consider why we are planning an exit. Are we planning an exit because we want lots of money and want to go and live in the south of France? Or is it really an exit which facilitates further growth? So an exit, as I said, which is people call listing your company an exit. It's not an exit. You're not going anywhere. You might have, have, have a bit more money, but you're not going anywhere for quite some time because your job is to grow that business. And I think that's where I, w- I would start. And then I would start to look at the things that make you sale ready. And they are strong profits, obviously. The more profitable business, the, the, the more it's worth. A very clear and defined strategy that a buyer can come in and you can say, yes, here's our profit. We made a million dollars last year and 800 the year before. Here's our budget for the next three years. Here's our plan. Here's our strategy. Here's the money we're going to make. People are buying the future, even though they're paying on the past. Proven ability to execute on a strategy is going to increase the value of the business. Clean financials, I'll get them cleaned out. You know, let's make sure... There are plenty of people who run businesses who don't really understand the finance side and they don't even look at their P&Ls and they're not even up to date, their balance sheets and cash flows, all that stuff. I'd get that, you know, stop paying the nanny through the business and all those sorts of things. 
I would be building a second tier of management because that's what people would be looking for. Then I think what you've got to do is maybe start to think about who a potential buyer would be. That's a very interesting conversation. Our business, the one I mentioned earlier, which is now 120 million and, and you know quite profitable. Well, the irony of that business is, yes, it's bigger, more attractive, more profitable, but the number of people who could buy it has diminished dramatically. In the Australian recruitment market, who's going to go and buy a business that's making $5 million at a multiple of five? Okay, that's $25 million. Who, Who's got that? Yes, there are people, but if you're a business making five hundred, there's many, many more buyers. So who is the buyer? Is it an Australian listed company? Are there multinationals from the outside who might want to use your company as a foothold in our market? Private equity is even taking an interest. IPO is, is, is to be considered. Uh, and then I would encourage people to cut the emotion and be pragmatic. And a good way to do this is say, okay, I say my business is worth 10 million. Then I'd say, flip it. Say you're on the outside. Would you pay two, 10 million for your business? Knowing what you know, would you pay it? You know, why would you buy your company? And my, more importantly, why would you not buy your company? And then if you ask that question and give an honest answer and say, you know what, I wouldn't buy my own company because really all the relationships are in the hands of the vendor, not, not with the staff, then I would say fix it. Those are the things I would do. Focus on what the buyer is going to see, not what you see from the seller point of view. When you look in selling your house, it's the most beautiful house on the street. If you view it from the buyer point of view, you go, you know what? It's on a busy corner and it doesn't have a garage. These are things that are going to reduce the buyer's interests. And uh, then I build sustainability. You know, as I said, people are buying future revenues. And in, in my industry, which is all people, there's no manufacturing. It's about uh, you've got to look at your weakest link and, and, and realize that people will, will calculate a, cr- a price according to your weakest link. And, and so what are the points of failure? How much annuity revenue have you got? What's your digital footprint from a marketing point of view? Have we invested in that? Systems and processes. People talk about the phrase productization, which means, you know, the pumping out of a product in a consistent way. Well, in a service business, you've got to servitize your business where the, the processes are documented. And if I, if, I, if I plug in new people, they'll very quickly fit in. You don't want a, a business that's got 12 staff and each one of those staff does it a different way. It's having that defined and documented operations that people want, a real proven induction and training and supported with good technology. And in my area, that's an ATS, which is an applicant tracking system and a CRM, customer relationship management system, all of which companies would have under other names. That needs to be clean. Can we market our business digitally and socially? Uh, By social, I mean social media. And, And I think the other thing is that if you try to squeeze too much out of your price, you really need to leave something on the table for the buyer. So by that, I mean the price is reasonable, but there's a clear growth strategy and there's upside for the buyer. You've got to make it easy for the buyer to see a golden future. It's interesting you say that because I've spoken to a number of businesses that are buying recently, and this is exactly what they say. They look for companies where they can see extra value that they can add. They don't want to see that it's tapped out for value, that it's grown as much as it can. That's exactly right. So like I, as I said several times, you know, one and one equals three. The one is the seller has got all these good things. The other one is the buyer can bring these good things, and between the two, it's a catalyst for bigger and better things. That is when it really works well. You know, like that example of uh, people people in Melbourne, it's a great example of where one and one and one, there were three parties to that. Didn't make three, I reckon it's made about nine. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, look, thank you so much, Greg. 
it has been such a fabulous overview of your experiences in many facets of this M&A environment. If our listeners would like to find out more about you, and I know you've got a really great blog, which I highly recommend. So if any of our listeners are interested to hear more about you, they can follow your blog, right, by heading over to your website? Yeah, I would say to any of your listeners, if you have listened to this and thought I'd be a good guy to act as your advisor in a sale or a buy, I am not. <laughs> I'm just telling the story. I know there are better people than me. I have a website. It's gregsavage.com.au. I put out a blog called The Savage Truth, which is, by the way, the best name for a blog in the history of blogs. <laughs> Savage Truth. It's mainly about recruitment, but it's about leadership. It's about social media. It's about ethics, often within a framework of recruitment. Uh, and so that might be interesting for people, or you can follow on Twitter or, or LinkedIn. It's all there on the blog. Where you can. I'd be very happy to have more connections in that area, but I'm not an M&A expert. What I've told you today is everything I know. <laughs> well, you sound like you've got a wealth of experience there, whether you call yourself an expert in the area or not. You know, I just want to mention to any of our accountants listening, we actually had an interesting quick discussion before we launched into this podcast recording about the, the work that you do with accountants. So you, you're talking next week, I think you said it is, in New Zealand. Well, I'm an owner of one of the biggest accounting recruitment firms in Australia, and I'm a shareholder in the biggest one in New Zealand. So that brings me into contact with a lot of accountants. And that has transpired with me being invited to speak to the ACAs of New Zealand in Auckland. It's actually next month. I'm sure there'll be a page on this on their website. Yeah, I think it's Price Waterhouse, one of their members, has released a document and research on the future of work around AI and how it's going to affect work, particularly in accounting, which, by the way, let me tell you, is very, 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 very ripe for disruption by technology. And so the debate and the discussion is what skills will accountants need to have going forward? Uh, How will we manage people in in a more collaborative type environment? And um, I'm the keynote speaker, and I'll be thinking of something to say by the time I'm there. Trust me. Do you uh, you talk about anything on your blog that our accountant listeners might find of interest or is this especially for your keynote events? Well, the leadership and people management topics, which you can, by the way, you can search for that on the site in a drop-down menu and that'll all come up. That would be relevant for accountants as much as anybody else on God's green earth. In fact, that'd be more relevant for accountants who, in the main, put more emphasis on technical skills than they do on people skills. Uh And that's come from 40 years of experience. I'm not intending to insult anybody. If I was intending to insult anybody, it'd be much harsher than that. (laughs) I'm simply saying that management and leadership, staff retention and motivation of people, particularly in an environment where people are working more remotely, they're working more with technology, they're working in an environment of significant change where where their jobs are going to be evolved and technology takes big chunks of it. That is all going to be held together by strong management, uh, strong leadership, I should say, not not management, strong leadership. We can all improve in that area and uh, accountants are certainly amongst that group. Mm -hmm. Well, look, thank you so much, Greg. Thanks for your time. I've taken far more time than I probably promised I would, but... Far more, and I'll be sending you a gigantic... (laughs) I couldn't stop. It was too interesting, and you've shared 
so many really interesting insights from being at the coalface. And I think that's what makes this such a really interesting discussion, hearing the experience at the coalface. So thank you so much for your time. I'm very appreciative of it. Jokes aside, I'm grateful and appreciate you thinking of me for your podcast. I hope it's been useful. And, and, and I certainly hope that anyone who listens to this might pick up some bits and pieces, because I'll be honest with you, I would love to have heard this podcast 30 years ago. It would have saved me a lot of pain, you know, to be honest with you. Most of what I'm telling you is through mistakes I've made, of which of which there is a very lengthy catalogue, you know. <laughs> well, through that, I, I think anyone listening to this who is in any way involved in the industry couldn't help but leave the side of this podcast with some really useful insights from what you've been talking about. So I, I really do deeply thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for our two-part series with Greg Savage. And as always, thanks for listening in. I hope you found it really useful and informative, just like I did. If you would like more information about this topic, head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com, where you'll be able to download a transcript of this podcast episode if you'd like to read it in more detail. There, you'll also find details of how to contact Greg Savage if you would like to, and you'll also find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like a free consultation to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions. On our show notes and on our episode webpage, you will also find a way to download our free ebooks if you're interested in reading up on the legal considerations in preparing for the sale of a business, or if you would like to read about the legal considerations in buying a business. We have two great ebooks available, depending on what side of the fence you're coming from. And of course, we also offer the option of co-branding. If you'd like a copy of either of these documents, customise for you to use with your clients by having your brand attached to it. If you'd like to do that, just get in touch with us via our contact section on our webpage at aspectlegal.com.au. So once again, thanks for listening in. We hope to see you next Tuesday for our next episode of the Deal Room podcast brought to you by Aspect Legal. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.